This morning we continue to think about worship. And again, maybe thinking about worship in some unlikely places in our lives. Worship from even our places of limitation. This past week, as I was posting some of these, uh, our, our youth pastor job description on some of these ministry websites, I encountered a, a question or a form that if you had asked me five years ago, I don't think I would have ever anticipated having to answer this question in my lifetime. Maybe you've encountered this too. You're going about your business on the internet, maybe you're making a purchase or submitting some information, and a box pops up. And it asks you to verify whether or not you are a robot. Any of you robots out there? Anybody not able to click this box? Right, this box will pop up. It may even ask you to take some silly test with grainy JPEG images to prove that you are not a cyborg in disguise. And just in case you were wondering, let me put you at ease. Your pastor is not a robot. I was able to click the box and proceed. And of course, the the reason for these these boxes is due to the rise of artificial intelligence and these programs called bots, right, that are designed to impersonate human beings by filling in forms on the internet, requesting information, even in chat-like conversations. It's almost like the, the robots are beginning to take over. And that sounds sort of alarmist, I suppose. But if you watch the the headlines or magazine covers, there is a growing interest in a kind of future where technology extends farther and farther out. And this has given rise to movements uh, like one that's been dubbed the transhumanist movement. And and this way of thinking believes that as we increase our capacity for technology, that that human beings can be ushered into a new level of existence. We we can evolve past what we are today and into something better, according to this way of thinking. And one of the, the loudest voices in this particular corner is a think tank called Humanity Plus. And they describe their mission in this way. They say they are out to use reason, science, and technology to overcome fundamental human limits. They want to live longer than we've ever lived. They want to become smarter than we've ever been. They even claim that they will be able to to adjust or or live uh, emotionally at a different level than we have in the past. And they say, in order to do this, we must relentlessly push past our limitations. They they want, in in no uncertain terms, to to basically eradicate death and human limitation through technology. And now, not everyone is on this bandwagon. Not everyone is, is sort of on this extreme end. But I think many of us find the idea of expanding or or pushing past our limits appealing. 
Right? We might not be a transhumanist, but we don't mind if, if Google or Amazon or Apple or Tesla or whoever it is sort of slowly usher in a reality where, where we are more capable, right? more comfortable. But I also wonder if beneath all of this optimism, right, to, to push past our limits, If underneath all that, there is actually a great deal of anxiety about seeing who we really are and and coming to terms with what it means to be just plain human, not humanity plus. Right? We're we're almost ready, it seems, to trade in humanity 1.0 and we're looking for some kind of upgrade or update to our system. And we're so busy looking forward that we are no longer noticing or, or receiving the gift that is before us, the gift of, of God's image in our humanity. We're being blinded to that. In one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he talks about the God of this age by which he does not mean the true and living God, but but the powers and principalities of darkness, things that work in our world, that prevent us from seeing reality as it is. That prevent us from seeing the gospel with a clear set of eyes. And in particular, he says that the God of this age obscures to us the face of Jesus, the image of God in Jesus. And again, Paul is writing, you know, 2,000 years before the age of the internet and and bots and transhumanism. But he knows that that we struggle with the person of Jesus Christ because he doesn't look like any God we would dream up. He doesn't look like a God we would create. Because even in Paul's day, Jesus was far too human. Jesus' ministry... And the gospel message was too full of weakness and death for many of of those who heard Paul preach. And we simply don't know what to do with weakness and death and humanity. I remember talking to someone shortly after they had lost one of their family members in a tragic accident. And they said that in the the weeks and months following that, it felt like grief was like this invisible partner in every conversation, every relationship they were a part of. And she said that, that everyone knew about what had happened, they knew about her loss, but no one knew how to deal with it, how to come to terms with it. Was it okay to talk about it? Should they just sort of ignore it? She said for most of the time that meant that her reality and her grief was sort of clumsily ignored or put away. It was the elephant in the room that that no one knew what to do with. And I think we can probably all relate to that. It's a challenging place in our lives to, to deal with and to speak into and walk alongside others. But I think if we cannot face death, if we can't face suffering, if we can't face hardship and grief, 
then we'll also have a very difficult time seeing the gospel for what it is, in fact. And for seeing Jesus Christ for who he truly is. Because from our very beginnings, the the Christian church has posited the unthinkable. We believe that death is a central, it's a vital part of our faith. Every month we say and recite the, the Apostles' Creed, and in that creed we confess Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. We use three different phrases to emphasize his death. And then to, to make sure we don't forget that aspect of what we believe, right? We take the cross and we put it on our altars. And we place it on our steeples. Right? The death of Jesus turns up in the chorus to our songs. We cannot worship without the death of Jesus Christ. But have we let that part, that reality of the gospel, settle into who we are. This morning, as we open up the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to proclaim to you the glory, Paul says, of Jesus Christ crucified. So that we might also see our God in the face of Jesus. And in turn, we may be people who begin to truly live from it. Let me pray for us as we open up the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know the full power of your gospel. That we worship you because you are a God of life creation and new creation. But Lord, we can also be certain that you work that power in places of darkness and death and limitation. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk with you. Help us to surrender to you. Lord, I pray as I preach this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to continue looking at this passage in chapter 4. We just saw this, this verse a few moments ago about the God of this age blinding many of us to the reality of the gospel and who Jesus is. But chapter 4 here, and actually this whole letter of Paul, second letter to the Corinthian church, comes at probably the lowest point in Paul's earthly life. It's the the lowest point in his ministry. He is in, in a very difficult place. But as Paul writes this letter, he is... Attempting to come to terms with how he can believe in the gospel, in the the fullness of this message of of a glorified and risen Jesus Christ. That's what he's preaching. It's actually the reason for his suffering. How does who Jesus is 
go together with what Paul is now experiencing. His grief and his suffering and his hardship. And somehow Paul says the gospel includes even these seasons and moments. So he writes here in chapter 4. For our God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God is doing this work of new creation, speaking into darkness. But we have this treasure, he says in verse 7. The glory of God is the treasure, right? We have this treasure in jars of clay. This is where God's put the treasure. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul expresses the the conditions of his reality in chapter 4, and they read like a litany of grief. Paul sort of takes time to to take stock of his emotional state. And Paul says, I am feeling hard-pressed in this moment. I am feeling perplexed. I am persecuted. I am struck down. Verse 8, Paul says it's, it's like people are taking shots at him from every side, every angle. And his work then as an apostle, as a planter of churches, as a preacher of the gospel, all of that work has crashed into this towering wall of limitations. There's nowhere for Paul to go. There's nothing more he can do. And he's grieving this. Most of us spend the majority of our lives trying to ignore our own limits. But here Paul is confronted with them in a way he could no longer ignore. There is a poster, actually a series of posters that hang on the walls of the gym where I, I run and swim. And they say, you are limitless. Right, And that, that's nothing new. Pretty much every shoe company or apparel company has some slogan of this variety. Right? That sounds like an awfully nice thing to believe about myself. Right? I have no limits. I can live life on my own terms, however I want. But it actually turns out that it's also a pretty oppressive thing to believe about myself. If you're anything like me and you are fearful of disappointing others, then you're probably also really good at setting idealistic goals for yourself about how many people you can 
can please or how many projects or concerns you can sort of juggle and hold together at any one time. And it's actually pretty easy to choose to live limitlessly. It's easy to choose to live without limits. The hard part comes in actually pulling that off. Right? There's, there's never quite enough of us, never quite enough of me to live out this, this ideal version of my own self and my own life. And again, the problem with living without limits is it's not in touch with reality. This nice fantasy I've created about who I am so that I don't disappoint anyone or don't have any limitation, it turns out it's, it's an illusion. But our God prefers to deal in realities, in truth. And so one of the, the sort of growing edges of God's kindness in my life the past few years has been slowly exposing, slowly showing to me my own limitations. Coming to terms with the fact that maybe limitations are okay. In fact, God may have even created and, and provided me with limits on purpose. And I wonder, what, what are your limitations? What are the things you may, you may be aware of, but you, you find yourself frequently trying to push past. Limitations you have a hard time accepting about who you are, how much you can do, your circumstances. Consider the limitations that Paul is up against here in 2 Corinthians. If you were to take a composite picture of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we know that Paul has close friends who have now slandered and wounded him, right? They've turned their back on Paul. Paul has a whole series of rivals in several of the cities he's planted churches that are seeking to supplant him, they're seeking to undermine his character, they're using personal attacks about Paul. On top of that, Paul, we also know, has been sick. He's experienced some form of illness during this season that's kept him from being able to travel at times. And Paul has also been spending time in prison. And we're talking Roman first century prison, right? You don't heal and get well in prison, right? Many people died of sickness and disease in those places, if you put all that together, it's enough for Paul to say at the start of this letter, 2 Corinthians, back in chapter 1. Paul says there is a sense in, in who he is that he feels like he's living life under the sentence of death. That, that life sometimes feels like a living death sentence for him. And there are some mornings where he despairs of life itself. Those are his words back in chapter 1. Paul is very clearly not limitless at this point in his life. But incredibly, if we take time to hear what Paul is actually saying here in verses 7 through 9, Paul countenances all these things, but, but these verses are not a gripe session. Paul's not even venting here. In fact, Verses 7 through 9 are Paul's 
boast. Paul is boasting in only the way he can. He's giving thanks for these circumstances and limitations. And he says in verse 7 that when all of these limitations, all of these challenges are, are coming at him at once, he says the beautiful thing is that something has been exposed in that process. Something that would have remained hidden in a, in a season where Paul had it all together and, and Paul was this impressive public speaker. And Paul says that that something that gets exposed is a treasure. It is the glory of God in him. He says these limitations have exposed an all-surpassing all-enduring power of Jesus so that he could be hard-pressed but not crushed. He could be persecuted but not abandoned. He could be knocked over but he is not destroyed in that moment. Something, Paul says, something in his very person keeps him, holds him together in this season. And it's, it does even more than that. Paul says it's, it's birthing, it's working the life of new creation in him. Death keeps coming at Paul, but life keeps showing up in the aftermath. Look at verses 10 and 11 and 12. Paul continues... He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal our dying bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Again, in the the middle of this incredible season of grief in Paul's life, Paul chooses to, to reflect on and take stock of what's happening inside of him. And Paul faces and he feels his emotional, and his physical pain. And in verse 10, he describes it in this way. He says, it's as if I am carrying around the death of Jesus in my body. Paul says, what was done to Jesus, right? the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the persecution of Jesus is now coming my way also. At the end of his letter to the Galatian church, Paul will say that he bears on his body the marks of Jesus, probably from beatings. The scars of Jesus are on Paul's body. And so his identification with Jesus is not just abstract, it's not just theoretical, it is visceral. Paul knows Jesus, he knows the death of Jesus in his flesh and bones. And I don't suppose we have experienced what Paul has, 
But is there a sense in which we too carry the death of Jesus in our bodies, in our persons, in our lives? Right? When we experience loss, when we experience suffering, when we experience injustice, when we are wounded by others, do we have a sense that, that we are sharing in, that we are carrying in our bodies what Jesus has faced before us? I want to know Jesus the way Paul knows Jesus here. So I want to know Jesus in my body, right? To trust that whatever might assail my person, any rejection, any wound, any sickness, any attack is not something I endure alone. It's not separate from my faith. It's part of following Jesus, right? My my body, my, my person, our whole selves belong to him. So that even our sufferings are are sufferings that share in the death of Christ. They're not wasted. Because we carry Jesus Christ within us. There is a powerful illustration, I think, of this in Gruenwald's famous altarpiece. And if you look at that that painting, I think it's the 16th century, early 1500s. If you get an up-close look at the body of Jesus, you see that that on the cross he is scourged with all of these various diseases, skin skin conditions. And Gruenwald painted this image to be put on an altar in the town of Isenheim, which is uh, in, I believe, northeastern France. And that village had a particular mission. And it was to build hospitals to care for those who suffered from plague and suffered from particular and and kind of insidious skin diseases. And so as worshipers would come into the church there and they would worship and they would receive communion at the altar, they would see this image and they would be assured that Christ has shared in their afflictions, in what they know, in what they are suffering. And that they then can share and participate in who he is. Right? That the gospel lives in us even when life isn't the way we think it should be. Even when we are suffering and enduring great trials, that the gospel is at work and is, at pres- is, is present in our bodies. And so if Jesus is in every cell, in every experience, in every emotion, in every thought, then that makes, again, us whole people, our whole bodies, our whole persons belong to him. And so what Paul says here as he continues in verse 11 is that if he can experience the sufferings of Christ and the death of Christ, then he can also know with certainty that the life of Jesus Christ is being carried around in his person also. He says, In my mortal, in my dying body, life is being uncovered. Some of you were part of the the worship conference a couple weekends ago, 
And at several points in that, in that weekend, we were invited for the life of Jesus to, to minister to us, the spirit of Jesus to minister to the hurts of our past or the deficits of our present. Right? To know that, that Jesus' great desire is to lay his hands of life upon us as his people. And so the gospel gives us courage then to face our, our limitations, our losses, our deaths. Because the same gospel that announces that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried also proclaims that Jesus rose to life on the third day and that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of his Father. Jesus carried death in his body so that death might be reworked into life. I think there's one other surprise here in this passage in verse 12. Commentator Paul Barnett says, Death is, by definition, the absence of life. Death is the absence of activity. Yet Paul says in verse 12 that death is at work. Death is doing something productive. Death, when it's attached only to the person of Jesus Christ, it produces more life somehow. Paul says... Not only is death at work, but it's at work in us so that it might move through us. Notice how that verse ends. Death is at work in us, but life then is at work in you. And as we are yielded to, as we face our limitations, the gospel is revealed as this great treasure. The glory of God is seen in us. And others begin to experience life. I want to close this morning by just praying slowly through these last two verses and just invite the Holy Spirit to apply and to speak and to help us name where we are limited so that God may reveal his limitlessness. Just hear these words as you close your eyes and pray with me. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. Jesus, as we pray, I ask that you would help us see in this moment of prayer where we are limited. Lord, be a physical limitation. It could be a place where we feel overwhelmed emotionally. It could be a relationship that we don't know how to put back together. It could be a sense of expectation that we don't feel able to meet any longer. And Lord, I pray that we would trust you enough surrender that, to be okay with the fact that we carry in our bodies death and suffering and limitation, but we want you to work new life. 
We want to worship you with all of who we are. Lord, would you reveal your glory in us as your people. Thank you that the gospel has the power of new creation in it. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.